This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Four samayas, or vajra bonds, adamantine bonds, or commitments, if you like, the four samayas of Dzogchen. It's so close that we overlook it. It's so clear that we see right through it. It's so good, it's so unbelievable that we can't hardly believe it. It's so obvious that we don't notice it. Anyway, you can find this in Tibetan texts. This practice of seeing it as it is, the view, leaving it as it is, the meditation of unmeditation, undoing the habit of overdoing, an action of natural, spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity, liberating, selfless activity, rather than egocentric, karmic, reactive, conditioned activity, is based on the basic Buddhist teachings. You can find it in every yana, in every sutra, you know, almost everywhere you look when you know what it is. Like when Buddha said, there is nirvanic peace and things left just as they are. Although we have a feeling from the general teachings that it's a long path through many lifetimes from here, samsara, confusion, suffering, delusion, worldliness, to there, across the boiling ocean swamp of samsara to the perfect island, the heavenly divine, the nirvana, island of nirvana, the other shore, as it says in half the Buddhist texts. That's our general progressive developmental model But there's also the sudden enlightenment school or way of thinking. Enlightenment now. The unconditioned, of which all conditions are merely conditions of it. It's not an it, but unconditioned nature of all conditions, the right here and now. Nirvana within samsara, as it says in the Mahayana scriptures. 
nirvana within samsara, not elsewhere, just like yin and yang interpenetrating, not separate like that pastry that's chocolate covered on one half and white vanilla covered on the other half. But like the yin-yang symbol, a Taoist symbol in which one morphs into the other and in the middle of each has a circle of the other. Like in the metaphor that shadows are nothing but light. That heat is just the presence of the motion of electrons and energy or not. There's no such thing as cold. There's only the lack of motion, lack of heat, lack of energy. So can we perceive things this way with our non-dualistic third eye at the same time with our dualistic two eyes so we have depth perception and balance in practical terms about virtue and vice, healthy and unhealthy, helpful and harmful, and so on. Of course, the third eye is just a metaphor for unity vision or prajnaparamita, the absolute truth, the absolute reality, as well as the two eyes, just a metaphor for our dualistic vision, seeing subject and object and interacting accordingly as we need to in the relative world where we are born and separate from the mother, let's say, and become individual and individuated, which is necessary in the healthy stages of development. Before we transcend self, we have to become a healthy, individuated adult ego. Not an egotistical bastard, but a healthy, individuated adult self. As the Buddhist wise guy, Buddhist psychologist, I think it was Jack Engler who first said, you have to become somebody before you become nobody. That's what he was talking about. We have to become independent before we realize interdependence, before we realize autonomy within interdependence, not just getting stuck at the state of arrested development of team-like independence, somewhat irresponsible, but becoming autonomous within interdependence. So, In the Mahayana scripture, samsara is within nirvana, not, uh, oops, that too. Nirvana is within samsara, nowhere else. Freedom is within bondage, thus the image of the phoenix arising from the ashes, not rebirth, not just self-development, self-improvement projects, self-help, etc., According to Buddha's enlightened vision, there is no separate individual permanent self, and it can't be helped. That's just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic or redecorating a prison cell when the door's already opened. But maybe we're afraid to step out. We all say, mostly we say, we want to get out of our ruts. But who's ready, willing, and able? Who's ready to get out of your rut and leave that cozy, smelly nest, you know, familiar, long time, comfy nest behind? Who's ready? And who's willing? Who's willing to get out of the rut and face the unknown, the uncharted plane, not just being in that narrow, siloed course, the rut? 
provides also a certain security and familiarity, just like some prisoners don't, are afraid to leave. They don't know what to do outside prison unless they find a way back. It's a well-known phenomenon of recidivism. People who return to prison almost self-unconsciously wanting to get back to the familiar and their familiar kind of friends and existence. Who's ready to get out of their rut? Who's willing and who's able? Who knows how? Not just to jump up and get a peek and then fall back in. Who knows how? Who has the means and methods, techniques, and persistence and fearlessness and perseverance to get out and stay out and maybe make new ruts, maybe more intentional, healthy, fulfilling ruts. The new ruts are easier to get in and out of. They're not that deep, just like new habits are easier to change and recondition than old habits and conditioning. So hard to recondition and ultimately decondition. In the Mahayana uh, teachings, everything is marked or characterized by subjectivity or shunyata, emptiness of concreteness or Everything is insubstantial or impermanent or dreamlike changing. Shunyata is the word, hard to translate, void. In English, it's not what we think it is. The example usually given is, of course, that this is really about we're going to apply it to ourselves. We're not who and what we think we are. And we don't necessarily have to be stuck with our mind-forged manacles, as the poet called it. But the example you're given is of table, like this looks like a table, but is it really a table? I mean, it kind of functions like a table. That's an un weird table, but you know, it functions like a table. I'm sitting at it, it has stuff on it. We could have people sitting around it. We could have dinner for, I don't know, three, four, <laughs> maybe. This looks like a table. But from this side, it just looks like two um, orange crates t tied together with uh, <laughs> duct tape, a blue cloth, you know, pinned over it with um, safety pins, and a fancy Tibetan brocade hang in the middle in the traditional style to make it look like a ritual table, an altar, a llama's seat, or whatever. Of course, it's a table, relatively speaking, but is it really a table? Or just two orange crates? And what was it a while ago when the wood was a tree? And what will it be in a little while when it's taken apart? So, no, so similarly, if you look at ourself, no permanent, independent, separate self. It doesn't mean there's no relative self or individuation, individual. This is a tough nut to crack in Buddhism, the notion of no separate, permanent, individual self, usually abbreviated as no self, which is easy to misunderstand. No separate, individual, permanent self or soul or atma. Process, a whirling conjuries of protean forces, changeable forces, unowned, governless, no self, impermanent, therefore unreliable, There's many other things we could call this than a table. That's another example of emptiness or our concepts about it are empty or questionable. Well, it's functioning as a table now. 
But last week it had oranges in it. It was a crate. Or we could say, well, it's a table, but it's also blue. Everybody's looking at it. It probably looks blue, right? It's a blue table. From this side, it looks like a brown table. Who's right? Everything depends on your perspective. That's the notion of subjectivity. Shunyata also means subjectivity in my way of thinking. Generally, it's translated as emptiness, which is a little bit nihilistic. It also means the luminous effulgent void, the unconditioned from which everything seems to emerge without going anywhere. Like the ocean's waves never leaves the sea. Mere temporary phenomena, separate waves. Sure, you can see the big waves, separate waves, but it's really just the sea, right? So can you see that both at once, the oneness and the manyness, the one in the many, the unity and diversity, that's the secret of balancing or holding at the same time absolute truth of shunyata and relative truth of karmic interconnectedness, the one in the many, like Buddhas and beings, like ice and water, different sta temporary states, but the same H2O nature. Sleeping Buddhas and awakened Buddhas, still Buddhas at heart by nature. It's only temporary obscurations which veil that fact as the laughing diamond tantra, Devadra tantra says. So this subjectivity, this ingraspability and tangibility, this like self-deception sort of, or hallucination or dream that we get caught up in and over-invest in, it's hard to see through when that is the consensus reality. And to recognize things as our own projections. It's very hard to say what is good and bad or hot and cold. Some people think it's too hot in here, others think it's too cold. Depends where you're coming from or what your body, you know, machinery is like. Some people think this is a beautiful meditation hall. Other people think it's a, you know, scary Catholic um, church. Why do we meditate in here? Why don't we go in the other room where there isn't, it doesn't look like a church? I don't know, to me, it's a beautiful meditation hall, not just because there's a Buddha there, but you know what I mean, light and stained glass windows and all, but of course, there's also the crosses and other things. If you're a Catholic in recovery, some people are bothered by that. It's so subjective. The Dalai Lama has been here many times. I mean, this is a beautiful, blessed spot. Why focus on, you know, something that pushes your buttons from your background? Of course, most of us here are not reacting in that way. I'm just caricaturizing something to make a point. <laughs> Trying to speak English. <laughs> it ain't easy. <laughs> My Tibetan's even worse. <laughs> Is there anyone will tell you? <laughs> but spirituality is a very uh, intimate matter. So, who and what are we is also part of it. The nature of identity, not what we think we are, you know male, female, 
this color, that color, this nationality, that nationality, this religion, that religion, this role in life, that role in life, all of which changes so much over the days, years, and decades. Look back over your decades, from being a baby to a child to a teenager to a, you know, whatever, a student to a something else, a professional, a mate, a parent, a grandparent, or this or that. Even your name might change. Who are you really? We'll get into that more tomorrow with the self-inquiry question in meditation. Are we really who we think we are? And are we limited? Oh, I'm too old to, to, get, to really get enlightened on this path. It's so long. Or I'm just a woman. How can I be a Buddha? Buddha's a man. Just look. Of course, there's no gender in the ultimate nature. There are female Buddhas and so on. The sacred feminine principle embodied as a, a Buddha, no doubt. Kuan Yin, etc., Tara, so many. Or I'm not, you know, literate. I'm not well read. I don't know Asian Buddhist languages. These are just self-concepts. Robert Aitken Roshi, the late elder American Zen master, used to say, give me anybody for a week. And he's a Zen master, so you know, you've got a Japanese tradition. So you've got to you know, take that into account with this uh, style or tone he adopts. Give me anybody for a week, and I will drive them to enlightenment. <laughs> And he would have seven-day, rigorous, intensive, traditional, silent, did I say yet, rigorous, intensive, <laughs> austere Zen retreats where you weren't allowed to wear socks or hats, you know, in the freezing Zen dough that was like bamboo, you know, without insulation. And he would drive people to Satori, which is enlightened experience. Housewives, you know, illiterate, um, overeducated intellectuals, all kinds of people, not just experienced spiritual practitioners. Because there aren't that many prerequisites. We're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize who and what we are. He was famous for this. You can read about things like this in one of the first American Zen books called The Three Pillars of Zen by the first American Zen master, Kaplau Roshi, Philip Kaplau Roshi, who was a very intelligent, clear, rational guy. He had been a law journalist at the Nuremberg trials and things like that. That was his career. So he was in Japan for the post-war uh, war crimes trials in Japan, I guess, and he, in the 50s, and maybe even the late 40s, and he met Zen masters, and he was there for years, and he trained, and he woke up, and he became the first American Zen master, Kapilar Roshi, and he wrote a thick book called Three Pillars of Zen about his, I think it was his three teachers, but one chapter has about 50 lay people's stories about their great, their satori, their awakening from his one-week retreats. Now, our retreat's really only six and a half days, so you won't get that. <laughs> Don't be disappointed. But if you come to a longer retreat, you might. It's the it in what we were talking about. It's so, too close, so we overlook it. It seems too good to be true, so we can't hardly believe it. It's too clear, so we see, don't notice it. And the fourth one. <laughs>
<laughs> Look, I have a whole Dharma talk outlined here, but it's like, you know, what it says here is the four surmises oak chan. It doesn't spell it out. <laughs> I used to know what it is. It's in the Tibetan book of Living and Dying in English, and Sogyal Rinpoche's book. Great book. So that's what we're practicing here. We can find this in so many places. In Zen, where it says just sitting, Zen is Buddha sitting. In Zen, where it says, and of course we all know Buddhism is so ahimsa, nonviolent, non-aggressive, even sometimes very vegetarian and so on. In Zen, where it says, and this is right out of the Zen scriptures from a Zen master, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. What? Kill? Kill the Buddha? What does that mean? It means that's not the real Buddha. The Buddha is here, not on the road, not in front of you. Not on the altar, not other. There is no other. Anyway, once we had a Change Your Mind Day in New York, Tricycle Magazine started Change Your Mind Day in, uh, I don't know, 1990s or something, the Buddhist magazine, Tricycle. And um, a bunch of us teacher types were invited to speak. And one of them was a Japanese or Korean, um, an Oriental Zen master who spoke English. And we were there in the park on the Sheep Meadow in New York, you know, which is like an open concert space without a fence, no charge. There were kids and people skateboarding and roller skating around on the sidewalks and, you know, people walking their dogs and picnickers and, you know, maybe a thousand people who came for Change Your Mind Day who were there in the crowd. And we had a little meditation, we had a little chanting. And then, the, <laughs> and then I kind of wandered away to go to the bathroom or something and I heard over the loudspeaker, just get the picture at Central Park with all these people, not just... Buddhist Zen people. Kill the Buddha! If you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha! That's what I heard over the loudspeaker from about 200 yards away. <laughs> That's where discernment comes in. You have to understand the meaning of these teachings, not just the words. You know, the spirit of the law trumps the letter of the law. Whoops, I said that word. The spirit of the law trumps the, the letter of the law. So we see it in other teachings also. Nowhere to go and nothing to get. Things like that. Even in the Bible, which uh, many of us would not consider a such a uh, wisdom book or, a, you know, meditation or a pithy instruction. It has a lot of history and a lot of moral tales. And, of course, the heart of it is the, I mean, you could say, is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. But the heart of it for us today is probably the Gospels and Jesus as a wise master and good example of unconditional love. Anyway, it says in the Bible, and I think it's in the Testaments, actually, in the 
in the four Gospels in the Testament, it says, the kingdom of heaven is within. Probably we've all heard that. But who understands that? That's what we're talking about in Zogchen, the natural, the innate great perfection. The kingdom of heaven is within, not just after we die. And if we have good karma points or good deeds piled up, we get to sit, you know, we get to get through the gates. Of course, we encourage good deeds in relative way. But not this kind of thinking about then we'll get the reward later. Virtue is its own reward, as we have all heard. But who understands that? Thus, the ten or six paramitas, the Buddhist virtues. Dana paramita, the first one, giving or generosity. Not just giving to get something in return or to get your name on the building, but without expectation of return. That's the perfection of giving. That's what virtue is its own reward. That get, takes you all the way to here, now. And so on with all the Buddhist virtues. Morality, patience, effort, and so forth. The ten or six paramitas, transcendental virtues, transformative practices, panacean virtues really is my translation. So we've been practicing sky gazing. Today I introduced further the three sky practice, the eyes in sky, releasing the gaze or casting the eyes into space, casting thoughts and feelings and all the arisings in consciousness into the space of mind, infinite space of mind and just dropping everything in the groundless and boundless innermost secret space of being and mingling outer, inner, and secret that way, not just thinking, looking outside or inside, kind of bursting the bubble of separate selfness in the sea of which we're always a part, of which we're always part. Seeing through ourself that we're in the sea of which we're always part, like a bubble. We don't even have to burst the bubble. We don't have to slay the ego. We don't have to renounce our kids our job, our house, we have to renounce the illusion of separateness, of self, selfness, of, and the clinging and craving that comes from it. This is also craving, you know, get away. Not just craving what you want, but craving what you don't want to get away. So this is the view, meditation and action, the ground path and fruit of the great perfection in practice with the gaze like the sky, eyes like the sky, body like a mountain, energy or spontaneous arisings like people say thoughts, but it also means thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and moods and everything, intuitions arising by themselves without being suppressed and not indulging in it and being carried away into chains of discursive thinking. The middle way not suppressing and not indulging, just allowing and awaring and even enjoying the entire procession of the Dharmakaya awareness or the Buddha-like awareness, just seeing all the floats go by like it's the Easter parade, the scary floats like the Battle of Stalingrad or the Haunted House float, as well as the beautiful floats, the Hawaiian you know, flower 
people dance or floats or the fairy goddess, you know, princess floats, whatever, without grasping at them, getting fooled like a dog running after them, getting crushed under the wheels because underneath they're all just like carts or cars dressed up in drag as floats. That's the meaning of emptiness. It's not just the Battle of Stalingrad. It's actually just a cart with a scene superimposed upon it. And that's what we do with our projections and interpretations superimposed upon reality and fighting with it like fighting with ghosts, trying to get the ghosts to go away, the ghosts of our own imagination. So any questions or uh, anything, please? This sky-gazing practice, sky-gazing is my original translation from decades ago, is actually called in Tibetan Namkai Naljur, sky-space union yoga, Namkai Naljur, mixing the mind with space. Namkai Naljur, I call it sky-gazing. Yes, Rob. Thank you, Lama. Um, I have a question about enlightenment that I've been... I knew I shouldn't have mentioned that. <laughs> Usually I only say awakening or wakefulness, but go on. Uh, I, anyway, I've been struggling with these issues for a couple of years and what you're talking about. And what with the, the path that the Buddha recommends, if you follow this path, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You just do what he says and eventually, hopefully you'll get enlightened. Um, and with what you're talking about, it sounds like you just start off enlightened and then figure everything else out after the fact. That, um, you, that what, I'm, I'm struggling with what the view is. What, is. Is that enlightenment? And then you just... The view is like a glimpse of a wakefulness or enlightenment or shunyata. These are beyond words, so I wouldn't hold on to you know our idea of enlightenment is like a placeholder. It's not probably not the thing itself. You know, like our idea of God. God's a nice word, but it's a placeholder. Mm-hmm. And people argue about it. But I mean, who the, the people that are arguing about it? You know, it's it's very rare to find anybody that even seems to know much about it among these arguments. So it's a placeholder uh-huh. for freedom, for liberation. You know, for getting back to the garden, the original goodness. Um, and I was also wondering, what, what's the Tibetan word for the view? Then are there Tawa. other translations? Ta- yes. Tawa. Tawa. What? Tawa. How, how else could it be translated? Um, it's usually translated as the view with a capital V, not viewing like mm-hmm. a verb, like seeing, but view. Tawa, also translated as perspective, outlook. Weltanschauung in German. You know that word, worldview, wealth and chong, like the whole gestalt, not just the little picture you see out of your peepholes right now, the bigger picture. That's why people use the word the view with the capital V. Mm-hmm. But it could also be like translated, if you're going to stretch this, as the first noble truth, right view, clear vision, the first noble truth, seeing it as it is. Okay. So in basic Buddhism, it's also, they use the view as like the ordinary basic translation that we got since you know, 50 or 100 years ago, right view. 
sama samditi, not opinions, not viewpoints, but seeing it reality, which is not a good Buddhist word, seeing things as they are, clear vision, right view, wise view, the first noble truth, sama samditi. Okay. Um. So view refers to your glimpse, you know, like your highest understanding, your inner wisdom. That's what we talk about being introduced to the view, which really means like recognizing it. It's like being initiated. Mm -hmm. You know, initiation, sometimes it's just a blessing. Sometimes you actually like wake up or you make an exponential leap. That's the real initiation, not just having been there and getting a red cord around your neck or a blessing. Um. So Satori is the Zen word for breakthrough. Breakthrough to what? Breakthrough to having a glimpse of reality or shunyata or the true nature. That's called the beginning of the true path. Then you have a sense of direction. Then you're really on the true path, Arya. So it's not just schlepping and hoping. It's that there's like a there, a, not a, just hoping there's a there there, but you're actually, you know, you, you know there's a there there. Like when you see your father in the middle of Yankee Stadium, you recognize him. Nobody has to tell you, that's your father. Nobody has to confirm, that's your father, except in the most unusual cases where somebody didn't grow up with their father. Okay. So it's almost like a first step as well. It's the first step on the true path. That's why it's called the first bhumi okay. in, the, in Mahayana Buddhism with the ten bhumis or stages towards enlightenment, the 11th, or stream entry in Theravada Buddhism, the original Buddhism, his first dip in nirvana. That's the definition of stream entry. So in that sense, it is enlightenment. Enlightenment is nirvana. Nirvana is enlightenment. It's not a place. So your first dip in that, Satori in, Jap in Japanese, you know, in Zen, the breakthrough to that. But it's like the first step on the true path. Okay. You know, not just on the, like, trying to general do good deeds and, and be a better person, but also really having some wisdom about reality. Like, it uproots certain illusions. Like, you know, there's a there there. So you, it's not just faith, now it's conviction. So it uproots, like, certain doubts interfere with faith because now it's like con conviction or n knowledge gnosis okay so i hope that's helpful but you have another question about this robert uh no, that's helpful I, I i was thinking of it as an end step but it's i think it's more helpful to think of it as a beginning step yeah because it's a new life it's like you know being reborn as an aria they call it in sanskrit not aryan aria from the old days it meant like um, initiated or like uh, purified enough to perceive reality and you know knowing that that and working from that basis not just following what others have said once you've seen the sun rise in the east you sort of understand something about that that you didn't understand before just from reading you know, you know which direction to face if you want to see the sunrise. You don't really need a compass. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you.
So in Tibetan, the word Sanje, enlightenment, is San means completely purified, and Ye means fully developed or blossomed. So fully purified or um, free from the kalashas, the obscuring emotions or obscuring defilements, let's say. Greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy. Freedom from that, and fully develop the qualities and cities and powers of you know, unconditional selfless love and transcendental wisdom, prajna, and so on. Purified and fully blossomed. Sanjay. Since you are interested in the word enlightenment, which we hardly use in Western Buddhism because it's such a pie in the sky for most people, but um, even yesterday in an interview, somebody walked in and they said this to me, and I was really happy to hear it. They said, when I heard the words, and this is like the called in our tradition the five main qualities or salient qualities of enlightenment or nirvana or nirvanic experience, enlightenment. I have to think it in Tibetan for Zab, Shi, Trodel, something, and Dumache. <laughs> Zab, profound. You see how these words are a little abstract. Zab, Shi, totally peaceful, like transcendentally at rest. Great peace, we usually see it in books, great peace. Profound, sublimely peaceful, you know, like what does it say in the Bible? The peace that surpasses understanding. So, profound, deep, or complete. You know, it also means broad, vast and profound, inclusive. The peace that surpasses understanding. Zabshi Trodrel. Uncompounded or not compartmentalized. So, like... Uh, homogeneous everywhere. I don't want to say oneness. Trodrel means like uncomplex or not parts, like a singularity or something. Zabshi, Trodrel, Osel, luminous, like um, infinitely aware, awake, lucid, luminous. And fifth, Dumache, uh, unconditioned or not subject to change or unaffected by conditions. You could look it up. So somebody came in and said when they heard those words, they had a huge breakthrough and they're still like meditating in that space after that from like a year or two ago. So I was very gratified because that's the point of the Dharma words. You know, to get the meaning, not just the words. Like, I just got the words. I could just memorize all these things and just spew them out, you know, like a Dharma jukebox. But it's up to you, you know, to dance to the tune. You know, not my tune, to have your dance. Dance of freedom. Joyous dance. As if nobody's looking, as they say. Dance as if nobody's watching. Live, how about living as if nobody's watching? Not wondering, you know, who's watching, what it looks like, like narcissists do, or what your parents would, you know, would think, etc. Questions?
Anybody we haven't heard from? Yes. yes. Fade, Phil. Uh, small point of technique. Uh, yesterday you said mouth open. Yes. Mouth breathing or through the nose? It doesn't we don't legislate the breathing. Natural breathing, mouth open. We also don't tell you whether to close or open your nose, your ears, your, th you know, we, what are the instructions? I can't remember. Eyes open, I have to go, you know, eyes open, ears open. I don't know, I've ever said this before, I'm trying to remember. Eyes open, ears open, nose open, mouth open, throat open, chest open, heart open, diaphragm open, anus open, everything open, inclusive, <laughs> decontracted, <laughs> at ease. Open. And but mouth open. And let me, let, me, let me elaborate. Mouth open, like sometimes they say it's like gaga. Uh, you don't have, really have to do that, I'm exaggerating, but uh, like, so you lose your reference points. Not like that sculptor's um, sculpture, Le Ponceur. You know, Rodin. You know, thinking hard about the existential plight <laughs> or, or your taxes. <laughs> Just gazing out over the view, you know, from the, you know, having stopped your car drive rush to get somewhere and just stopped at the scenic viewpoint and taking in the scenery, gazing. So the mouth open, as a wise lama explained to me, if you breathe through your nose, it's, you have, it's dualistic. If you breathe through your mouth, it's unit one. I wouldn't research too much further into that. Remember what Shukinima said, how do you practice Mahamudra? Ah! <laughs> That's why his father, the great, really great Dzogchen master, you know, when I say that, it's not just like he was my teacher. That's why he's so great. Well, greatest. He was the Dzogchen master in Tibet of the 16th Buddha Karmapa. He was a well-known great Dzogchen master, and many of us, and the Vipassana teachers, many studied with him and his sons, the mindfulness pioneers in this country, like Joseph Goldstein, etc. He was a great Dzogchen master. And he always used to say, quote, this Tibetan kind of instruction, yang tung damang. So that's four syllables. But what it means is, to make it as short as possible in English, Many quickies rather than few longies. So it means like keep it fresh, like cut through now, now, now. Not trying to have longer and longer prolonged states of peaceful meditation or whatever. And he would quote from the fearless master Jigme Lingpa, Longchenpa's disciple, who said, like a waterfall gets better by breaking from rock to rock. You know, waterfall, breaking from rock to rock, hissing and bubbling and shooting up and spray and, you know, fantastic waterfall, not just like a curtain of water, like a shower. As the waterfall gets better and aerated, aerating the water also, 
as the waterfall gets better from rock to rock, the Dzogchen, Dzogchen meditation improves by being broken up again and again. It's not an unusual pithy instruction you don't hear everywhere, rather than longer and better and sustained and quieter and protect, you know, and maintain your meditation. So I think this is very integratable into daily life because we're not emphasizing concentration or time or prolongation, duration. Like this moment only moment, you know, anytime you can just like look at the sky or shout pet or, you know, if you're in the subway, maybe don't shout pet, you just say it inwardly. <laughs> Wake yourself up, cut through, cut through, break the ice forming on the flowing waters of natural awareness, not get stuck in your holding pattern, your comfort zone, like thinking less and calm and clear and, you know, but maybe not that penetrating, just like relaxing. That's fine. That lowers your blood pressure. That has a lot of benefits, but not so penetrating. Insight, and you have to penetrate deeper to understand universal principles to gain discriminating wisdom and awareness. Questions? Maybe the last question. Yes, Mel. Hi. Hello. How are you, Mel? Uh, great, actually. Fantastic. Getting, getting better all the time. Um, oh, and talking about getting better, it's after a bunch of retreats with you, I think I'm finally getting Zochen. No, well, getting <laughs> Zochen meditation. Good. You're so, learning how to meditate? That's rare. I have students that after 5 or 10 or 15 years, I won't mention their names, but they tell jokes in closing circles. And they, I had to finally tell them, I won't tell his gender, that, you know, he, I think he, he never really learned to meditate. So he should stop trying to meditate and do other practices. Well, one of the reasons... So I'm glad that you're me, learning, because it's not that obvious. Well, and, and it took me a while to learn this practice because I had spent 30 or more or more years in, in mindfulness meditation. Yeah, but that's no good. Well, that's what, I wanted to, <laughs> but that's what I wanted to talk about. Half your life that's, is wasted, as they say in India. Whatever I, you say, right, Indian guys? Acha, you have not been to bananas? Half your life is wasted. Acha. Ah, but that... Upuala. Acha. And that leads to my question. Um, uh, I mean, you, you are my core teacher, and it's, it's because of the Dharma, the way you explain it, after going through many other variations, I, I'm at home here. However, in February, I start a two-year course with Sarah Brock and Jack Cornfield to become a certified mindfulness instructor. Yes, so, you mean you're, that online course, Ati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, some, it, it has right. brief yeah. in-person parts. Right. But yeah, I think yeah. you're listed as one of the uh, yeah. resources. Um, do you have any advice for me about distinctions between the two styles of meditation or things I should be aware of or think about? Um. Because I haven't listened to all those sessions in general, I know that Vipassana teachers teach meditating with their eyes closed, but maybe in recent times that may have changed due to other influences. So do they teach meditating with eyes closed? 
I, 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 the course doesn't start till February. <laughs> okay, well, it's hard to compare things that you don't know about. Like, you know, so Vipassana is often taught with eyes closed and Dzogchen and Mahamudra with eyes open. That's like a small, let's say, external difference, but it could be a big difference. It could be hard to do if you're used to meditating with eyes closed. But actually it's about awareness and the mind, not the eyes or the earplugs. So, or the crossing your legs, you know, you can do it in the chair. Or lying on your back is a good way if you don't fall asleep. Um, but it's more, I think, about the attitude and the view and, you know, the path orientation about steps and development and goals and things like that. The traditional path of purification, as we call it in Theravada Buddhism, and stages of insight and things like that. that you know, Dzogchen kind of swoops down from above, starting from we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to wake up to that fact, or it's only temporary obscurations that veil it. Not we have to purify for a very long time with good deeds and, you know, austerities and other practices, meditation practices too, and then, you know, get somewhere. I don't know. Um, since you remind me of... of uh, the movie Dangerous Minds. Anybody seen that with Michelle Pfeiffer? I love movies about teachers and students, teachers in difficult places or mentoring. Dangerous Minds. So Michelle Pfeiffer is a teacher who somehow ends up in the, like the roughest school with the roughest kids in let's say East LA or something. And of course she's white and they're all very, very diverse. And they don't want to study, and no teacher can get them to do anything, and the teachers keep quitting. But she had, is an ex-Marine. Of course, she's also a beautiful model. So, but anyway, you know, it's a deep movie. She's an ex-Marine, and, you know, divorced. You know, she has no friends, of course, because that complicates the movie. Anyway, she has a really hard time the first day, and she wants to quit. And her wise friend who helped her get her that job says, no, you have to get their attention. So she tried, you know, she tells them she was an ex-marine and is anybody here to, you know, because the guys want to touch her and hit on her, they're like 12th graders, she invites them to come on if they dare. So they show their, you know, karate and their macho. And of course, she, being an ex-marine, is much, you know, better than that, than them. So they get a little respect and attention. And then she, they, so they listens for a little while, and she says, we're going to start everybody in this class that always has red Fs on their report cards with an A. We're going to start everybody with an A. And the kids are going like, and then they, they're coming out from under their hoodies and their, you know, earphones. An A? I never got an A. Can you get an A that easily? And she says, this is my classroom. You all have A's until you, like, do something wrong or like you lose it. So that's the swooping down from above. And I often say little things about this because I'm in Michelle Pfeiffer's lineage. <laughs> Catwoman and all that, you know? Batwoman, whatever she was. <laughs> um, in Dzogchen, just remember this, you can't miss. How many times have I said that? Or it's like playing basketball with a hoop that's bigger than the whole court. <laughs> so that's very different than the 
path of the stages of insight and training from concentration to wisdom and realization and you know stream entry and then stream dunking and pickling and then stream streaming these are the four stages satipano anapana adabhadasati and arhat and then liberate a saint it's a little different starting with an a Thank you. So Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, an authority. He has many books out. As an elder master, great Dzogchen master, who has been teaching in the Western world longer than anybody, since like the 1960s. He lives in Italy. He knows many languages. Namkai Norbu Rinpoche from Tibet. He says that uh, I try to start with the view and then patch in according to people's needs. You know, like you only put these bandages and casts and crutches and relative practices on as needed. And hopefully, you know, restore back to health, which is the, the natural great perfection of things as they are. You can read that in Namkai Norbu's books in more places than one. So this is very traditional, even though it seems kind of radical or fresh and funny, like I'm making it up as we go. I have two feet in that old world, as well as two feet here on the funny farm. I mean on the west. <laughs> Thank you, Mel. Thank you. There are other details you could go into, you know what I'm saying? Like bodhisattva vows, like tantric samaya, like chanting mantras, which may be... They're not doing that much in your mindfulness course, but it is part of Theravadan Buddhism, of course, chanting and refuge and ref rituals and monastic vows and other things. And even and Bodhisattva vows. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.